So far this year, more than 1,000 people have died or were categorized as missing while trying to cross to the European Union through the Mediterranean Sea or one of the EU southern borders. Many people who take this dangerous journey do not have any documents with them. When they die at the borders, it is extremely difficult to identify them and then find their families to inform them about the tragedy. In today's episode, we will talk to a person who fights this good yet very difficult fight of documenting and identifying those who lost their lives while trying to reach Europe. Our guest today is Dr. Jan Beeker, a founder of Forensic Missing Migrant Initiative. Jan, I recently learned uh, that our podcast actually reaches some American audience and some of the topics we are discussing here are very interesting yet uh, very foreign to the American uh, audience. So I believe this one, this specific topic can be actually one of those more complicated ones. So I want to start from the very basics. Um, Jan, if you could explain to us a little bit What is the mission of the Forensic Missing Migrant Initiative and the history behind it? Um, As I remember correctly, you officially launched your foundation back in 2018 after the big shipwreck on Samos, right? Uh, Yes, that is correct. Yes. Uh, Before that, uh, since 2015, I've worked on many other uh, shipwrecks as well as part of my work for for a big humanitarian organization. Um, but officially, our uh, initiative started in, uh, yeah, in Samos uh, in 2018, where we had a shipwreck, and this basically launched uh, the rest of uh, yeah, our program, really, for, uh, that, we, that we're currently doing. Um, well, before we, when we started in 2018, we, we, uh, our work focused very much on documenting migrant graves, um, because we thought that is still a very um, uh, unexplored area, really, and not many organizations focus on, on this particular area. Because what we have found is that uh, we've we found about 900, more than 960 graves um, so far. But what we found that 40% uh, doesn't have any grave markers, which of course leads to another loss for the relatives. So even if they identify someone after a number of years, they they get a secondary loss again because not only they lost relatives, they now they have also lost the body because they don't know where they are. So our mission really started uh, in 2018 to document those graves, uh, write down the locations, try to find as much information as we have in order to create like an archive of those graves in order to help families later on. Uh, this started not only in Greece, but we also worked in Malta, uh, where we also did uh, some missions over there to uh, report the graves. So um, initially our work was very much focused on Greece and Malta in terms of um, yeah, our initial work. Now our work is very much focused on Greece only because of the the workload that we have. Um, And um, yes, so, but we still get a lot of information about other countries as well though. So the Balkan routes, um, Belarus, Bulgaria, et cetera. So we collect information, but we hopefully this year we can start some missions over there as well though, to see what the situation is because the uh, the situation over there is very much similar to what we have here in Greece. So we hope Mm -hmm. that our knowledge can also yeah, um, do something good in those countries where they're all struggling to identify many of the migrants. 
Uh, I want to ask you specifically uh, about those undocumented graveyards. How are you able to locate them? I can imagine this is an extremely difficult task. It's not like everybody's pointing you to, to a massive graveyard somewhere uh, in a remote area. I, I remember you pointed out to uh, us to Cidro back in 2018, and I would, I would have never guessed that this specific location is a mass a graveyard. Without a pin on Google Maps, that, that was impossible for me. So how are you locating and learning about those places? Uh, well, we use different different methods, really. Uh, a lot of them is all coming from forensic work. Um, that is what well, that's been devised over the decades in order to, for example, document mass graves. But we do a lot of archival research, for example. We look at like uh, news articles from back in the days. We uh, try to find locals who were involved in the burials or NGOs or others who, would take, who, who have taken up this job of burying migrants. Uh, and we try to collect all this information. So there's def various sources. It could be yeah, like the locals. It could be caretakers of cemeteries. It could be uh, religious leaders that presided over a funeral, for example. Funeral directors are another source of information that can provide us with some details of where specific people are buried. Sometimes it's the record of the pathologists. Uh, maybe in the mortuary, they have some sort of note in, uh, in the files to say that the body went, was buried over here. So we try to uh, yeah we try to uh, get different sources and then try to yeah put it together somehow and uh, yeah try to learn yeah where they are. Uh, when we have collected this information, we normally do a visit to the cemeteries and we actually try to find out ourselves where they are. Um, so this could be um, yeah, for example um, when we talk about Ephros where uh, where you shot uh, your film, um, we have actually quite a few uh, cemeteries over there. Um, it really started in uh, 1989. That is the first documented burial that we know, but that was in a little Muslim village. And since then, um, yeah, most of the uh, early burials were in like in the smaller uh, Muslim villages. And then from 2000 onwards, the Cidero Cemetery was uh, was used until about 2016. Uh, then Orestiada came, and after that, uh, now is back in Cidero again. So we have like a timeline based on the information that we've collected from uh, the local populations, from others involved in this process. And we try to reconstruct this as much as we can. And of course, another very important source of information for us is um, uh, photographers. So people that take photos on those cemeteries because we can create a timeline. So if some people took photos in like 2016, for example, we have like official documentation of the cemetery and then we can compare it to any photos that were taken before or after to see if any burials happened over a certain period of time. And this is how we try to uh, yeah, reconstruct the graves. And one of the, the, the examples that we have, for example, is Catotritos in Lesbos. By using like a lot of photos that were taken over the years from the start when the cemetery was created until now, we could actually create a whole map of the cemetery because one of the uh, biggest problems that we have is that uh, there are no mappings of those locations. So the municipality who has by law a responsibility to create a map with the exact locations and the numbers of the bodies who are buried there, um, often this is not happening, which means it's up to us to try and reconstruct this and try to create some sort of map in order for us to know where people are buried or if we get questions from families. So this is very interesting because it's not like the government or the municipality is trying to really 
hide those massive graves. It's not like they 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 kill the people. So it's it's not like it's really hidden, but it actually is hidden. Like the municipality, very frequently, I assume they do not direct you to those places. It's not an official. There's no um, information that this is the cemetery or something like this. Um, so this is a surprise to me that there is no official database of those places where refugees and migrants are, are buried. No, no. Um, well, the, the, one of the biggest problems we have announced uh, until recently, really, in the last few years, we see that the municipalities are actually making an effort more and more to actually create a map and document those graves. So in the last few years, we actually have seen uh, a little bit of a shift in uh, compared to the previous, like, for example, 10 years ago. So we actually see that they try to make a map. But the problem is a lot of the records, so especially for the older burials, the burial records, uh, they are manual. And many of these uh, death certificates, for example, are not digitized. So uh, the problem is that if we look, for example, for a burial in 2015, you may have to go to a registry office in the middle of nowhere who may have this specific paper to say, um, for example, Mohammed is buried in this location, but it's a manual process. So they have to go through all the records in 2015 wow. to see, to find this specific death certificate, etc. And then, so a lot of it is manual. That is the problem. So not, nothing is digitized or easy accessible. And of course, if you make a request or for this information, they can refuse because they say we can only give this information to the families. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So we have a big gap, and um, but because of the previous work that we've done, at least try to document the locations on the graves or in in specific cemeteries that we know. At least we have an idea where, where some of the the bodies are, even without those papers of the, the registry of. It's it's a very complicated process to to get this information, and uh, it's just combining a lot of sources of information in order to yeah to a specific location where someone could be buried. So do I understand well that basically your database is the most um, thorough database right now of those mass graveyards uh, in Greece? Uh, I wouldn't say it's perfect. <laughs> but uh, um, I think, uh, well, we've, we've tried to make an effort at least and we try to document as much as we can. But uh, yeah, uh, I think one of the other problems is as well, though, if the, if the bodies are buried in a Muslim cemetery, we know they're going to stay there and they, they are not moved because yeah, in, uh, of, in the Muslim region, uh, they are not allowed to uh, exhume remains. But bodies that are buried in, uh, in like the Christian or the, the, the Catholic cemeteries, of course, yeah, after a number of years, the bodies will be exhumed. So normally it's about three years in most of the places uh, around Greece. It means like even though I have documented a location three or five years ago, for example, they could now be gone because that is just uh, yeah uh, what is happening in uh, in the Greece in Greece um, that is exhumation of remains after a number of years to make space for others. So um, I think this is uh, yeah a very difficult uh, thing because we know that families often um, approach authorities after a number of years when they have finally settled. So when we have, for example, a family um, that has lost someone in the shipwrecks in 2015, for example, it normally takes a few years before they finally approach authorities and say, yes, I missed, uh, I'm, I'm, my brother is lost, for example. So by the time the whole process is finished and they have maybe an identification, the body could be exhumed already. And uh, it means they have, again, nothing, uh, a secondary loss. Uh, the loss of the body in this case is, again, 
So um, yeah, it's 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 very very frustrating. Um, that we have in, in Mykonos, um, for example, they they will normally be buried in a Shisto cemetery, which is a Catholic cemetery here in Athens, and we know they have a very strict three year deadline. So it's uh, yeah, it's a race against time too, and this is why we initially focused on this aspect of the work too, to document as much grace as we can, because at least we have some sort of record that uh, that someone was buried in this specific location. Yeah, so let's uh, go back now to your main activity right now, which is uh, documenting, trying to document uh, the undocumented ones, meaning people who have crossed to um, to Greece, usually crossed either the Mediterranean or the uh, land border, the, the river border in the north and lost their lives as an outcome of that. But because they didn't have any documents with them, it is very difficult to get their identity. So can you please tell us, how do you document them? How, uh, how are you creating your potential database of those who have crossed? Yes, okay. Um, so there is a little step uh, between. Uh, initially, we focused on yeah, very much on documenting the graves uh, of migrants. But uh, after COVID, it was very difficult for us. We took a different direction, really. We had a different... Um, Uh, approach uh, in order to continue our work and um, so we, we focus a lot of research on um, academic research on trying to find new ways of how we could potentially identify um, migrants that have been yeah that are deceased and maybe are not recognizable and um, we focus on different aspects for example like uh, tattoos um, other markings on the on the on the body for example that we could use But uh, um, one of the um, uh, projects came up is a personal effects project. Um, so we have a project that was running in uh, 2021 for a, a year. Um, and basically, uh, the, the coroner in Afros gave us permission to, to, um, yeah, to look at his collection of personal items that were found. Um, and um, he, normally, his procedure is that he collects those items from the bodies since uh, well, the collection dates back to 2010. When some items are found on the body, he will keep them in a uh, yeah in like uh, in in his uh, securely in his uh, yeah, in the boxes in his archive in the in the office. So he has a huge collection of items, which is almost 400 items at the moment. And uh, he gave us permission to analyze these. And um, as part of the project, what we did is we collect uh, we documented all these items, uh, everyone separately, and we did an analysis on them. So we photographed them in a proper way. Uh, we looked at very minute, minute details on those items. So, for example, when we have jewelry, you can find very specific markings that could indicate uh, the origin of this object, so the geographical origin. A stamp, for example, could, uh, yeah, could be made by a specific jeweler or a specific country, which we can trace back. Um, other items, maybe like um, pieces of paper, notes with phone numbers, or maybe there is, um, uh, we have found a number of items, for example, that, uh, with handwritten notes. We can actually also analyze this for if they have a specific dialect that, would, that we could trace back to a certain country or maybe a region where this uh, dialect is common. And uh, so for all these 400 items, we did exactly that to build up a, a, some sort of a profile of these items. So in some cases, we could actually uh, recreate like a, a migration history. So we could, for example, see that some items were, for example, bought in Iraq or, well, basically yeah, from Iraqi origin. We saw the person went to Turkey, et cetera, et cetera, and then to Greece. So we could 
use these items as well, though, because this will give us an indication. It will give us a clue to where the person came from. And if we, for example, have a number of missing Iraqis, we could prioritize them and start looking at those missing people to see if they could potentially be one of the yeah, the deceased people that we were looking at. Um, so yeah, so the, the personal effects project is one of the yeah, uh, one of the items that we uh, one of the projects that we did, and we created a public uh, database website that is accessible for experts, but also for uh, for families, so they can actually uh, look at these items to see if they can recognize um, yeah uh, any belongings that uh, yeah that could be from their missing relative. So uh, this is one of the big project that we did recently. So if I understand correctly, you're collecting all this data from those artifacts, um, mm -hmm. but also, uh, I don't know if this is your specific job or for example, the coroners, uh, you collect information about potential scars, tattoos, something that is very specific to this mm -hmm. person to create his or her profile so that yes. later on it is uh, easier to uh, identify this person. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, so if a person comes, a family comes in search for their relatives, how are they finding you, other coroners? What, what is their first step to start looking for their relatives if they suspect that they have died while crossing? Um, often it's social media. So we have a very strong social media um, um, presence. So uh, most of the people know that, that, that I'm doing this work because of the connections and, and working with the communities too. That is the most important thing because we need to reach out to them. If we're looking, for example, for an Afghan uh, family, then we, we need to have some connection with the Afghan community to, to be able to reach, to have a wide outreach. So people know what we're doing. And that we need information in order to yeah to to find their missing persons. So uh, community outreach is one of the the most important aspects of our work, and we're working very closely with, for example, the Syrian communities, uh, Afghan communities, Iranian communities, in order to yeah to to give us the information uh, that we need. So um, social media is normally the first point of call for many of the families who are looking for someone or try to find uh, advice what they should do. And um, what we do is we offer this advice to them. Uh, we do it free of charge. So the families, uh, they don't have to pay anything because in many cases we know that uh, they, they are being extorted by others, uh, by others, people who try to take advantage of the situation by offering services and um, asking for a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, we just provide free advice for everyone who has info need information or need to know about procedures or need to know about even yeah, finding their uh, the missing relatives. So um, so yeah, so this is what we offer, and um, this is how they reach us. So it's often by through social media, WhatsApp. Um, uh, the word is spreading basically, and uh, people know what uh, what I do. So it's uh, yeah. The only yeah, the only problem is that we we don't have outreach in certain populations yet that we desperately need. And um, so, yeah, this is what we try to build on now. So we have a very strong, uh, well, we have a very super strong outreach with, for example, North African population, Syrians, Iraqi, the Arab-speaking communities, let's say like this, and the Farsi-speaking communities. But we also need, uh, yeah, we need to expand to more uh, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, uh, Indian populations where we also know that, uh, that they have died in the Afros region. 
it's really hard and even seems a bit wrong to put some numbers and statistics uh, in uh, on this topic but um can can you tell us more or less from your current database uh which nationalities do you usually manage to identify um okay so at, at the at the moment we have about 600 i would say uh, 600 bodies since 2002 so it's uh, in Afro, so it is a huge number and on average, about 60% are, uh, well, not ever, of course, 50%, 60% are identified over all these years. Uh, mm. Last year, we had a very good year. Uh, we had, uh, because we almost identified over 80%, which is, uh, which is a very good number. Also, uh, because of the, yeah, the work that we do um, through social media to reach out to families and doing the forensic analysis to um, make sure that people are identified. Uh, last year was good, but most of them are Syrians. So we have the, the last majority of the people that uh, that we have found are Syrians and Afghans and North Africans. So this could be Algeria, Morocco. Um, so these are the, the top populations that we uh, that we often see. Uh, we have a lot of difficulty with um, um, the Pakistani or the Bangladeshi or the Indian uh, populations because we don't have a lot of outreach families over there. We remain unidentified. Afghan is also uh, very difficult because uh, uh, the families are very difficult to reach. And we had fun, very, very sad case where we actually were able to um, identify a person because uh, uh, in one of the items found a memory card, uh, we analyzed the contents of the memory card. Well, we actually were able to find, he saved a lot of videos from the TikTok, from the Instagram, his personal uh, yeah, social media accounts. And through that, we were able to trace of uh, some of his friends who uh, went to the Turkish media and uh, the, in the Turkish media he, he went to a radio station uh, and basically he said okay I'm looking for the family of uh, of this this boy uh, eventually after one and a half years we found uh, the family in a very very remote rural uh, farm area in Afghanistan but uh, yeah the family don't believe it they didn't believe that their son died because the yeah the son traveled alone he didn't tell anyone that he was going we know from the memory card that he tried to uh, access the German, uh, German language courses. So this is so there was definitely an intention that he was going, but he didn't inform his family. And uh, so yes, yeah, so we informed the family that we have to do something because we believe that their son is basically yeah he has died in Evros River, but they they don't believe it, and up until now they still don't believe it. So. Um, yeah, it's it's a very very difficult, uh, yeah, sad story. But we have many of those, and unfortunately, um, although most of them travel in groups, some of them also travel alone, and the families are not aware that they're going. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, most of the ones that remain unidentified are the ones that yeah are either not recognizable, uh, we don't have enough information to identify them, or they traveled alone, and yeah, the family is not aware that they are missing. Uh, Jan, I wanted to ask you about some differences uh, in Greece, because this is the area where you uh, mostly work. People cross through the Aegean, uh, usually, uh, and and then to they want to reach the Aegean islands, like Lesbos, like Samos. Uh, but also people cross, as you mentioned, the Evros River in the north. W- what are the differences when it comes to your work uh, between the, the bodies of the deceased in uh, Mediterranean and in in the Evros River. Um, the, well, the, the rest, well, the differences really are that uh, the the, uh, the ship. Uh, the, well, we have some recent incidents about uh, shipwrecks, etc. But 
they tend to be quite well documented. So the people that were actually on on board. So we, we, we what we tend to see is that um, yeah that we often have like a list of people that were actually on this specific boat. And as we see in the Mykonos uh, disaster now, um, it only happened a few days ago, but we already know the people that that have died there. It's it's going very fast. While in the Everest River, it's much more difficult to actually um, yeah to 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 get a picture of who who's actually missing or not missing. So uh, in terms of my work, in the last I think one year or, or so, we have more than 130 families that approached us that someone is missing in um, uh, in the Everest region. And um, we only found only like a handful. So, so far we were able to help families in 16 cases, but that means like another 100 people are still missing. So um, I think that is the, the biggest difference is that we don't really have a clear picture about um, yeah who is actually missing in the Afros River or who has actually died. Uh, of course, the other complication is that many bodies are not found in the Afros River or they are in Turkey, where we have very little information of, of the number of bodies or the identifications that are happening there. So I think it's, um, yeah, um, I think shipwrecks are in a way a lot easier. The only problem is that, um, yeah, that bodies, of course, when they drown in the sea, they can wash up on different islands. So it's uh, sometimes uh, one of the bodies, for example, in the Mykonos disaster that we have now, in like one or one or two days, it drifted about 64 kilometers to another island. So uh, so it's going incredibly fast, and um, it's yeah, it's just keeping track of uh, of yeah where bodies are found, and of course do the right procedures, make sure that DNA samples are taken by the coast guard, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in order to yeah. Uh, make sure that that they are identified fast when uh, when a body is actually found. But but yeah, unfortunately, same in Afros and in the, the in the Mediterranean in the between the islands. So yeah, there is a high high chance as well that many bodies are yeah that bodies are not found. And what we know from the statistics is that uh, in this specific region between uh, Greece and Turkey, about seventy five percent of shipwreck victims are found. But 25% are never found. So it is, um, yeah, uh, in 25% of those cases, families will never get, uh, yeah, a body or an answer because, yeah, they are not found. Let's say somebody has been identified and uh, is not buried yet. Uh, I remember the coroner on Lesbos, but also uh, Professor Pavlidis in uh, the Evros River area, he told us that both of them told us that they are trying to postpone the the funeral as much as they can if there's space in their um in their fridges uh, to to keep the bodies there as long as possible uh, in hope that somebody will actually come and say that they're looking for their relatives and will be able to identify them if this happens and somebody is identified um how many of those bodies are uh, sent back to their home countries and how many are buried in Greece um, I, I don't have exact figures, but what what uh, there's a difference uh, in well number of islands actually. There's not really a standard procedure in Greece, and I think that's what makes it very very difficult. So um, there is some sort of, uh, there is a rule that says that you, you have to keep unidentified bodies for 40 days, but we know in many cases uh, this this does not happen. Um, often uh, the, the prosecutor will give a, an order to bury the body as soon as possible. If there is an autopsy done, for example, they, they want to bury them as soon as they can. So in certain islands, it's maybe after a few days when the bodies are buried. 
Um, in Lesbos, I think that they, they tried to keep them at least for 40 days. But in Evros, uh, because there is a specific um, refrigerator um, outside the hospital where the bodies are stored, they can keep them up to at least one year. So we know we still have uh, in that refrigerator bodies from 2022 that are unidentified. So in Evros, the families have a lot, uh, much longer time to, um, yeah, to, uh, to go to Greece and actually yeah, see if they can identify the body. So, but there is a big difference in, um, yeah, across Greece and uh, in terms of time limits. And uh, yeah, the problem is that uh, yeah, often families have to travel to, uh, yeah, to Greece, maybe need to get the, the right papers, et cetera, which of course takes some time. And um, yeah, in some cases they are too late because they ordered the, uh, the, the burial order is already given. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's a, an, again a very, very difficult um, yeah, situation. Uh, well, the situation is changing uh, in the Mediterranean area in general since those big numbers of missing and dead people in the Mediterranean back in 2016 when we had more than 5,000 people dying while trying to cross uh, to right now, like last year, it was um, to an, around 2,500 people, if I remember correctly, that died or were categorized as missing while trying to cross. So the numbers are smaller. Does it mean that your your work is um, less demanding? Um, in a sense, I'm also asking if there is any progress in collaboration with the government, with municipalities on actually identifying and, and making this process easier. There is well, there is a little progress. So, so that is that is a good thing. Um, when we talk about Greece, for example, we know that the missing person unit is doing a lot of uh, good work now in creating a database of unidentified um, remains. So they are collecting information from the islands about missing migrants, um, as well as other people that remain unidentified. So um, there is a little bit of progress, but the problem is that, of course, many of those cases are quite well. They're older. So even though we have made some progress, uh, well, really since last year in, in terms of identifying um, migrants that have, have died, I think there's still a, a long way to go because a certain, uh, yeah, a lot of information is already lost. Um, and really the identification process, what it requires is that, well, it's basically two things. You, you need to have like good data, post-mortem data. So from autopsy data, for example, so you need photos, you need at least proper documentation um, that we could use. And of course, you need information from the family. So you also need good information for that. If one of them is bad, you're going to have, yeah, it's going to be a very big problem, um, yeah, to, in order to, um, yeah, make a match. And of course, a lot of them, you know, a lot of the work, you know, a lot of the identification in, uh, in Greece are based on DNA. So Greece is very much a DNA-based country. They think uh, DNA is the golden standard and that DNA can solve everything. Which is not true, because in most of the cases, what we get is uh, family members that are not direct relatives, but often like uncles or brothers or sisters. This makes it uh, very difficult yeah, to, to create, uh, to get an accurate DNA match. So we need other information like tattoos or any specific findings in the teeth or any other thing that we could use. It's always a combination of different items uh, or different anatomical features or different identification methods in order to create a full picture of the person uh, to establish this match. Uh, this is not what is happening yet. And this is, of course, what we need to focus on now in Greece, that DNA is not a magical thing. It's also very difficult to get uh, from other countries and send it to Greece. 
So we need to find other ways of yeah, creating accurate information from the body, but also that from the families. And uh, one of the projects, another project that we're doing now in EFROS is actually trying to do exactly that. Um, so we have launched a cranial facial identification project also last year. And basically what we do is we have um, experts from uh, FaceLab who are in Liverpool, uh, University of Liverpool, and they are world renowned for their work on reconstructing faces. So basically when they have a skull, they can put different layers of muscles, of tissue on the skull in order to recreate the face of the, uh, of the people uh, that, that the skull belong to. And this is exactly what we're doing now also in, in EFROS. So again, with uh, yeah, the very, uh, very helpful assistance of the, the coroner there, um, we, we, we are actually having access to a lot of the uh, longer term unidentified bodies. And we can scan the faces with a, with a face scanner and create a 3D digital image of the faces and basically try to reconstruct it somehow um, in, with, by putting different layers of, of tissue on there, muscles, um, skin, uh, etc., in order to recreate what they could have looked like. Uh, so this is another project that we're doing now. In the meantime, when we do that, we also collect a lot of other information from those bodies. So for example, we look at the teeth, we look at like certain anatomical variations in teeth, or this can help us, for example, to uh, yeah, estimate the population affinity. This is the term that we use. But population affinity means like there are certain anatomical features or traits that are, could be specific to certain populations. So for example, a North African population. And hopefully this will also give us some clues. So, um, so this is what we try to do. We try to create a lot of additional information that we could use now for, uh, yeah, for identification process as well. And uh, the better information we have, the better quality photos we have, the more we can do in order to uh, yeah try to uh, yeah try to get to the identity of the people that have died for uh, in the long term. And the most important thing is that yeah what we, we need to, yeah two good things we need good information from the families and we need good information from uh, the autopsies and the pathologists in order for us to do the work. If there is one uh, yeah if there is one uh, thing that we not have so if the if the quality of the information is not good then uh, yes, it's going to be very, very difficult. Be a very impossible task, really, to uh, to identify them. It is a very complicated process, that for sure. Uh, and as you're saying, it consists of several different things because DNA identification is not the only thing. Um, I remember when we did our research, some people told us that if you come from Afghanistan, there's, there is or some wasn't maybe, uh, when we did the research, it was in back in 2018, uh, that there simply wasn't a, a national DNA testing center. So whoever wanted to have their DNA tested had to go to India. And to go to India, you first of all need a visa. Visa costs money. And then you have to pay for the travel. And this costs a lot of money for you as well. So if you come from rural Afghanistan, even before Taliban took over the power again, uh, it was difficult. And now it, it seems like it's almost impossible. That's why collecting all of those artifacts, uh, information about tattoos, scars, dental uh, information is so important right now to 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 close this this profile to prepare this profile to potentially identify them uh, in the future well exactly and uh, and that is just uh, yeah it is something and i think even if we have photos of an object that they recognize for some families that is already enough 
So we have a number of cases where we, we know who they are, but the families still are just, well, they're having peace with the fact that they know that the son died, for example. And they, yeah, that is for them, that is enough. They're not really worried about the, the burial of the, the body or any formal procedures like DNA. They know that the person has died and for them that is enough. So, um, of course, it's many of them want a formal identification, which means through the, uh, the DNA and get like a proper uh, death certificate, which, of course, they may need in terms if they want to uh, do any legal procedures in their own countries to get inheritance or remarry. So in some cases, they will need an official um, yeah, paper that certifies that the person has died. But yeah, the process takes uh, can take years. Uh, we have a case now from uh, uh, someone who died. Uh, um, his brother died uh, in, in um, near Rodopi, in um, it is also in Evros. And um, um, almost a year ago, um, he gave his DNA in August last year. He managed to travel to Greece. So if if you are able to manage to travel to Greece, then of course the process the process is a little bit easier. But um, he did he managed to do this. He gave his DNA. Um, but in January uh, this year, the DNA report was uh, yeah was released by the police. So they uh, they made uh, they did analysis of the sample of the body and the, the sample of the brother. But they never informed any of the family or the, or the brother that what the result is. And up until now, uh, when we found out one and a half months ago that this report was actually sent to the police station in in January this year. So after four months, we found out that there was actually a DNA report. Um, we tried to, to get the results of this report for the family. Um, but um, until now, for one and a half months at the moment, we are trying to find, we try to get this report with the lawyer. Something simple to say, yes, this is my brother or not my brother. This is the extent of the, yeah, the bureaucratic obstacles that we face. And that is, um, that is specifically related to, uh, to DNA samples when there is no involvement of embassies. So when the embassy is involved, it tends to go a little bit faster because there is a little bit of a state pressure on uh, to get these results. But if a family, for example, tries to do it on their own, uh, often there is a delay of at least a year before they actually find out if it's uh, yeah if the body if the body is actually from their relative or not. And it's even more complicated when families are living abroad and are not able to travel to Greece. So we have most of the cases that we have now, we know that uh, the body most likely in uh, in Ephros, in the hospital, but the families cannot travel to to, to Greece for, for many reasons, because they are waiting for a renewal of, renewal of their uh, residence permits, for example. And uh, for them, there is hardly any option, because in Germany, for example, we have a number of cases there, uh, the, the police don't want to take a DNA sample because they require a paper from the Greek prosecutor. And of course, the Greek prosecutor is not going to give this paper. So in that case, they are, they are in deadlock. So they can't do anything until they get a specific paper from a prosecutor to say, yes, the German police must take the DNA sample of this person in order for it to be matched to this specific body. So uh, we face a lot of um, bureaucratic hurdles at the moment and uh, same with as you said also for families that live in Syria for example or in Afghanistan where there is no DNA lab where they can just go and uh, yes that this is creating uh, yes a lot of uh, yeah a lot of uh, problems for us because we try to advise the families at least about different options that they could do um, and this is of course what also takes a lot of time uh, yeah to to try and find a solution for uh, yeah that could work in those cases. 
Ian, thank you very much for your time today. I want to finish with something that uh, touched me uh, the first time we met and something that not only you, but also uh, people who you cooperate with uh, and work in this field always say that it is all about respect, uh, the respect for the family that is looking for their relatives, but also respect to the body, to the deceased person, uh, because it is their last right to be identified by name. So thank you very much. Uh, our guest today was Dr. Jan Beaker, the founder of Forensic Missing Migrant Initiative. Thank you for listening to Fractured. Our podcast is produced by Refocus Media Lab's citizen journalists from Afghanistan, Iran, Ukraine, and many other countries. It is partly financed by Alliance Foundation and Choose Love. However, it is thanks to donations from individual people like you that we can continue our mission of teaching media skills to refugees and asylum seekers and give them a platform to showcase their work. So if you value this podcast and our work, please support us on refocusmedialabs.org forward slash donate.